Hi, I'm Steve Shu. I'm Corey Washington. Welcome to Manifold. Apologies for the audio in today's episode. Corey and I are locked down in our homes because of the coronavirus. We're not in our usual studio, and so the audio may not be up to uh, its usual standards. But I hope you enjoy the episode. Corey, our guest today is Veneer Bonsali. I have known Veneer since we were both teenagers in Page House at Caltech. Veneer graduated from Caltech, did a PhD in theoretical physics at Harvard University under a very famous physicist named Howard Georgi. He was also, in a way, a disciple of another physicist named Sidney Coleman, who's uh, very famous. I think Veneer and I have written one paper together. Is it, is it one or is it more than one? At least one, right? Yep, one. And um, now Veneer is part of the group of physicists who really pioneered uh, quantitative methods in finance. I believe he left physics first to go to City. Uh, then he was at Solomon Brothers for a while and then had a long run, I think, as head of research and also a fund manager at PIMCO. And now he runs his own fund, which is called Long Tail Capital. Long Tail Alpha. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Long Tail (laughs) Alpha. Excuse me. Long Tail Alpha. Excuse me. And I, I hadn't talked to Veneer for a while, and I just saw him in the news because Long Tail Alpha made some outrageous returns in the last month or quarter and quarter. Um, really, in a way, because of the crisis, financial crisis induced by coronavirus. And so I thought we'd get on a call to talk to Veneer both about what it's like to be a theoretical physicist who then transitions into a career in finance, but then getting into the strategy and how his fund works and maybe his views on what we have ahead of us in terms of more systemic risks or just in general more risk uh, in the financial markets in the future. How does that sound, Veneer? That sounds fantastic. So I want to I want to present to our audience a little bit of a personal portrait of Veneer because he is one of the most fascinating guys in my whole life that I've met, and we've I, I want to repeat we've known each other since we were both teenagers. So I just want to tease out a little bit of a portrait of Veneer before we get into the you know, the nitty gritty of uh, what his fund does and and uh, what the, what's going on in the financial market. So Veneer, you grew up in India. Came to the U.S. to attend college at Caltech. What a one-way ticket. One-way ticket. And Only you, one quarter paid for, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that, but okay. Yeah. What and, part of India? Uh, from Rajasthan, northwest India. But my dad was in the railways, so we kind of lived all around, all around the country. And you, I think the entire time I knew you, your, your dream really was to do theoretical physics. Is that right? Absolutely. Now, we maybe had some friends. You, you may remember a guy called Kojo Goldberg that we went to Caltech with. That he maybe knew that he was going to be in working in the financial markets even then. But I don't think either you or I would have ever thought, at least I never thought at that time, that I would ever be working on Wall Street. Was that true for you as well? Absolutely. I actually, not only did I know nothing about it, I knew negative about it because I willingly tried to forget everything I knew about finance. Uh, I had no intention, no desire. And as a matter of fact, Steve, when you and I were at Harvard and we, when we wrote that uh, anomaly paper, that was when I was applying for, I think my first postdoc, you were a junior fellow and I was just finishing grad school and we wrote that paper and 
it got accepted. Uh, it was a pretty kind of formal paper for a student of an advisor who was a phenomenologist. But regardless, it got published. And I think the fact that that paper, paper got published more or less uh, sealed my fate that I was not going to get a good postdoc. <laughs> yeah, it's all my fault. <laughs> exactly. So, so anyway, regardless of that, I, you know, so what happened is uh, I kind of like, you know, decided to spend some time uh, at Harvard trying to uh, do a little bit of an unofficial postdoc. And at that time, luckily enough, uh, this was the second year that I got a call from a Wall Street firm, and I can get into what happened. But yes, the short answer is that when I went out and interviewed at Wall Street, I had literally zero knowledge and zero desire for knowledge uh, about finance and about Wall Street. Right. So let me let me tell a story, which you know it's it's locked in my memory, but maybe it's apocryphal, so you should correct me. But I remember you went to City. And at the time, this is ancient knowledge, Citi was not one of the leading, most prestigious firms like Goldman or maybe JP Morgan was more prestigious. But I remember your logic was they gave you the best comp offer and you were gonna save up money because you thought, oh, if I work there one or two years, I'll save up enough money to do my entire postdoc from what I save Exactly. and get a faculty job in physics. So you you were using Wall Street as a way to continue your physics career, at least at the beginning. Am I remembering that correctly? Oh, absolutely. So, so you know, I, when I was leaving grad school, I got this interview uh, from Goldman. I went to Goldman. I sat across from an elderly gentleman who was taking notes, who was also a physicist at one, one point in time. And I could read his handwriting upside down. It said, uh, basically, knows no finance, is extremely good at math, <laughs> And I came home, I told my roommate, who was a PhD economist at uh, Harvard, and I said, you know, I was at Goldman and I met this guy, his name was like Black, something like Fisher Black, something. I said, are you kidding me? You met Fisher Black? I said, yeah, Fisher Black. And, you know, they, they offered me a job and uh, I turned it down uh, because uh, they weren't giving me enough money compared to City, where they wanted me to be a trader, which I had absolutely never traded before. I had no desire to trade before. And they were going to give me 4X the money. And when I asked them, so wait, uh, I can come here, work for a year, take this money, then leave and do my postdoc, right? And he, they said, yeah, I mean, this is a free country. You do whatever I want. And I said, <laughs> so, so yeah, so my plan absolutely was to go there and learn and have fun with like a sabbatical or a year off. And then after doing that, uh, yeah, just go and do my postdoc. I think I had one in, at UT Austin and I had one uh, and Marseille, France, and then I think I had another one. Spain. Uh, no, Marseille in France. I think I had one in Salamanca, exactly. Yeah. And so I basically deferred all three. And I said, you know, I'm going to go do this for a year. And then the money that I'll save up uh, should be enough for me to, you know, survive for at least a couple of years because Super Collider had just gotten shut down. So the chance of actually getting a faculty job uh, was you know, absolutely impossible, even getting a postdoc. Uh, was pretty much like a dream, right? So I, I primarily took it, uh, you know, just to have fun and save up, save up a little bit of cash. Now, for our audience, Fisher Black is the famous co-inventor, or at least he's credited with the co-invention of the options pricing model, uh, Black-Scholes model, which is every finance student now learns in school. 
And so to be, to be interviewed by Fisher Black, you know, for, for someone who didn't know anything about finance, it was just another former physicist hanging around uh, Goldman. But for, for other people, that was amazing. And had Fisher Black lived somewhat longer, he would have won the Nobel Prize in economics Absolutely. because Scholz did win later on. So at what point did you finally consider yourself a finance guy? So how long did it take? I, have, I still haven't. I mean, that's <laughs> as simple as that. Okay. Uh, so, so it's very simple, right? So Steve, so I am, I, I got, uh, I kind of landed in this field with essentially no uh, knowledge, no training, and almost no desire to actually learn any of that stuff. So it was mostly learning by doing. And I considered myself to be on a perma sabbatical, like an extended sabbatical. And if you remember Mark Wise, who was my advisor at, um, a surf advisor at Caltech. So Mark and I, um, communicated uh, when I was in New York, uh, primarily about physics, and we are very good friends as well. Um, and when I came to PIMCO, um, I was head of research or head of analytics at, at PIMCO uh, and a fund manager. And I uh, basically roped in Mark to start doing uh, finance research. And he and I wrote 25, almost 25 published finance papers. And he's an amazing physicist, as you know, right? A heavy quark guy. Um, and we also wrote a book together. And uh, I still think of myself, I'm still involved with Caltech quite a bit, I still think of myself as a little bit of a misfit physics, math, computer science guy who just ended up in finance and kind of learned everything backwards, like learned by reading the book from the end to the beginning. Uh, and I've written three books in finance myself, but if you open up those books and you start reading them, they'll, look, they'll, they'll feel more like... Uh, a, almost like a physics physics book to you, or in many cases, almost like a story of options. So, so I still don't consider myself a finance person. But what has happened is that once you spend, you know, twenty five years plus, like I have done in the field, you basically learn a lot of tricks of the trade, and people start considering you to be a finance person. But uh, I mean, I'm a I'm an empiricist. I'm a if I have any skill, a little bit, uh, it's perhaps thinking outside the box and being able to write a model that hasn't maybe hasn't existed before. And then, uh, you know, like many of us, uh, I've used Mathematica and other symbolic programming languages uh, and Python now as a, basically a crutch, as a tool to take these, you know, complicated imaginations that I've had and turn them into something that actually makes conceptual sense. Uh, and when we get into what ha happened in the markets over the last five or six weeks, you'll see in spades that part of the reason that you know, we were able to not only dodge it, this is the fourth or fifth time knock on wood that I've been able to dodge you know, these massive uh, market avalanches. Uh, I think that is the reason is because I, I'm sort of not a mainstream finance person because I, I think more like a physicist or a math or a computer science guy than a physics guy, uh, than a finance guy. Yeah, I think Fisher Black was famous for also being an out-of-the-box thinker. And, um, you know, he had all kinds of very fundamental questions, which, you know, were things which puzzled me too about, you know, the fundamental nature of money and the role of the Fed and banking and things like this, which, which actually maybe if, if we get into the topic of MMT, we could actually get into some of those things at the end of this podcast. Um, so, so guys, for the, uh, for the audience, uh, from their point of view, it's easy to use the term out of the box, but can you give us a concrete example of what you regard 
entrepreneur as conventional finance thinking and then a way in which one might think differently? Yeah, so that, that's a fantastic question. So, so let's go back to Fisher Black for a second and go back to the, to the famous uh, Black-Scholes option pricing formula. Yeah, so give, so, that, give us a, um, you know, a finance 101 or a physics guy 101 turned finance person's view of the uh, Fisher yeah. Black-Scholes yeah. Yes, absolutely. So let's we should start. So let's start from the absolute ground up. So let's say you wanted to uh, buy protection, meaning uh, some sort of uh, insurance against the stock market falling. So the stock market just fell, as you know, and you wanted to buy an insurance, but you didn't want to sell all your stocks out. So instead of selling your stocks, you could just go out to a Wall Street dealer or go to the exchange and buy what's called an option, which essentially gives you the right but doesn't obligate you to sell your stock holdings at a certain price. So you can just say, hey, look, I'm going to pay you an insurance premium of 1%, let's say. And if the market falls 20%, then all I've spent is 1%, but uh, I don't lose more than a certain amount. Maybe I don't lose more than 3% or 5%. So that's, what's a, that's a typical option. That's called the put option. And that insurance policy, uh, will basically last for a certain amount of time. Could be a day, could be a week, could be a month, could be a year, whatever, okay? Now, it's a very interesting question. So the question is, what should the seller of this insurance policy or an option charge the buyer? What should be the premium? So it depends on a lot of different things. Well, how high is the market? Where is the market going to go? Uh, how uncertain is the market, et cetera, et cetera. Just like a typical insurance policy, right? If you're insuring your uh, home against a fire, you need to know well, how, likely, how likely is a fire, how vulnerable is my house to a fire, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Am I you know, an irresponsible person, et cetera. Now, the beautiful thing is that about uh, almost 50 years ago, uh, a number of people, uh, the most famous of them are these three Nobel Prize, or two Nobel presidents, uh, Meyer, uh, Bob Merton and Myron Scholes, but Fisher Black, and even before that, Ed Thorpe, and even before that, there were a lot of, empirical people had come up with a formula, essentially. A formula uh, which is, I'll describe the uh, math of it in a, in a few minutes in, in, a, in layman's terms, but the formula basically gives you a, a simple way of calculating the price of this insurance policy given certain input parameters. Okay, so, so uh, 20 or 25 years ago, before this formula came along, and this formula is called the Black-Scholes formula, it used to be, um, pretty much people would observe demand and supply of this insurance policy. And based on the demand and supply, determine what the price of that option should be. But then there was a massive breakthrough by a bunch of physicists who said, look, this is a simple, what's called a boundary value problem. Or, and you can actually solve this as if you were solving the heat equation. In physics, the heat equation is a simple equation that says, if you heat, let's say, a a piece of metal on one end, how will the heat transmit across the uh, bar of metal over time? How will it actually diffuse? Uh, so the mathematics of uh, what we're trying to solve for the insurance policy is almost identical uh, to the heat equation. In Why is that? What, what quantity in finance corresponds to heat? Or is yeah, there so that, direct yeah, so right. So, so it's a little bit like the price, right? So the where is the price? And the distance away from where you're hitting it is called the strike in the case of the option. 
and how much you what's the variation in the temperature or the heat is basically what's called the volatility. So there's one to one parallels, and you have to yeah. boundary. Uh, sorry, conditions. sorry to interrupt, but you know, Corey, one of the hidden commonalities between the heat uh, diffusion problem and uh, stock uh, price or or option price is that there's a random walk. So exactly. in the case of the molecules that are being heated, there's some random walk going on uh, of molecules bumping each other. And in the case of pricing the insurance policy, you're in a sense summing over all possible future paths of the stock price. Um, and that's a random walk as well. So that the underlying similarity in the mathematics is coming from uh, an assumption of randomness uh, underneath. Exactly, so that's exactly right. So, so this is where the fun starts, right? So. So if you're a if you're a physicist, as many of us are physicists on, on this uh, uh, podcast, uh, you know what the limitations of applying a physics model like the heat equation to real world phenomena like uh, behavior of people is. So when Fisher Black and Martin Schultz and others wrote the heat equation down and solved it in a beautiful form, in the form of essentially a closed form solution for this problem, they also listed simultaneously what the limitations were, that this was a simple model. Now, as a physicist, I understand what the limitations are, but there are a lot of participants in the industry who basically take this formula as gospel truth and assume that it applies under all circumstances and it's a completely ideal formula that has no exceptions. So they basically take what's given in the marketplace they crank the formula as a machine and they expect the answers to come out the same every single time. The big difference between physics and between finance is that finance is driven by people and behavior. And what, just Steve, men what Steve just mentioned, which is the random walk. The random walk is a great tool in physics and perhaps in mathematics to solve problems because it reduces everything to simple Gaussian uh, integrals and so on. Well, real financial markets are not random walks, or they are, they're sort of random walks, but there are times when they're not random walks. They're actually significantly autocorrelated. And they have fat tails, meaning the underlying distributions are not Gaussian. They're actually uh, significantly fat tailed and levy distributions. So my specialty and my business specialty, and this sort of explains you know, what you were talking about before about, about our fund and our strategies and so on, it, that we specialize in thinking outside the box to identify how does the random walk actually, uh, how does the market actually deviate away from the random walk in a very systematic, predictable, not a very predictable in a hundred percent sense, but in a probabilistic sense, um, when large events happen. When large events happen, what, think about what just happened the last few weeks. Uh, it's a little bit like, a, uh, in a better analogy would be, uh, an avalanche, and I'll tell you that story in a second as well, but uh, you are, you're out there like I was in uh, early January on the mountains, and you've got fresh powder on the ground, the, snow, the sun is shining, and you feel great, and you wanna climb up this very nice, steep, slippery slope. And I was ready to do that. I was skinning up in, in, in the end of December, that's one of my activities, I was skinning up a mountain up in, in Mammoth, and I suddenly realized that I am actually at the critical angle right after a massive snow dump on a sunny day, which is when my activity can perturb this 
avalanche and bury me and I'm dead, right? So I ran back and I read a book on how to survive an avalanche terrain. And what you find is that there's a lot of nonlinearity in that system. And once that avalanche starts, it's the sand pile effect that we all know of, suddenly the thing will just collapse up under its own weight. Financial markets are more similar to that than to a idealized random walk where things are very well behaved. So what just happened over the last three to five weeks was as the market started to cascade down, it triggered a further action from participants that ended up triggering further action and further action for them. So basically sandpile type of effect. And, and sorry, Vinier, these acts you're saying, there's, there's sort of a random walk and then I was trying to sort of yeah. interpret this for a layperson, i.e. partly me. Uh, there's some unpredictable events. Then after unpredictable, event, unpredictable events happen, certain somewhat predictable events happen. Is that right? So saying these things are autocorrelated, once you get correlated, once you get these kind of unsurprising unexpected but rather catastrophic events that are somewhat random you can then predict certain events off these random events right uh they're not quite deterministic but they're kind of expected yeah so yeah so, so it's actually very interesting you you cannot predict the outcome very precisely so just like go back to the avalanche analogy you cannot predict when the avalanche will start you cannot predict the probability perhaps because it's a rare event. But what you can say is that once it starts yes. at a certain critical angle, then it's almost impossible to stop it. Okay. And do you know something of its dynamics once it starts? So you don't know its dynamics, but you can predict what the damage will be given the, the surroundings, right? So let's say you're an avalanche and there's nobody there. Well, who cares because the avalanche, um, starts, nobody's going to get hurt, no, nothing will happen, no damage will happen. But let's say you, there's an avalanche that ha starts next to a very highly populated area. Now you know there's going to be casualties. So now think about that framework and bring it to the financial markets. So what had happened, and this will probably find a uh, you know, natural uh, segue now after, after this conversation, is our belief for the last three years has been that the ecosystem of the markets had become extremely vulnerable because of certain uh, actions by participants and by government policies that had resulted in, even though the phenomenon itself was unpredictable, once it started, it resulted in a cascade whose consequences were very predictable. So what were these actions by government and individuals that you thought put the market at risk for, I assume, not just unpredictable events, but for a large fall? Yes. So that's where we're coming to. Okay. So what happened is a, you have to step back macroscopically and look at very long, um, very long, I mean, 20 years history and say, uh, how are the different pieces evolving over this 20 year history to create certain weaknesses of the system. So let's just go back, not 20 years, only 15 years. So what happened uh, in the global financial crisis of 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, was there was a, a very large system of securities, asset-backed securities, which are basically linked to home prices, et cetera, credit default swaps that you might've read about it, uh, securitized credit, all these are buzzwords. I can explain them to you if you're interested, but 
a big ecosystem developed, which resulted in the global financial crisis of 2008-2009. Now, it's not very important for us to uh, think about what actually happened in the global financial crisis. What's important is just realizing that there was a reaction function from not just the Federal Reserve in the US, but the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, basically all global uh, central banks, was in order to make the system survive, back starting in 2008, 2009, they cut interest rates down very, very significantly close to zero. And they essentially made it impossible for market participants to generate any yield. So right, you, if you're a pension fund or you're an investor, you need returns. You need some return on your deposits. So instead of getting returns on deposits, the ecosystem actually got even more perverse. They sought out more risk to get better returns. Yes, so, so instead of seeing, so, so, so let's say you just want to get uh, maybe 2% yield, 2% return, and you're sitting either in Japan or Europe or even in the United States, for the United States, you could have gotten 2% about two years ago. But if you're sitting in Europe, the European Central Bank, which is like their Federal Reserve, they cut interest rates to negative territory, right? So, so here's a great thing for a physicist. So you know, in, in physics, we don't expect that a perpetual motion machine can be built that'll, that's really a perpetual motion machine. But in finance, if you create a situation in which you believe that you can take interest rates negative, meaning you give me your money, Corey, as a deposit. And also, instead of me paying you interest on the money that you've deposited to me, you have to pay me more money every six months. You would say, well, that's silly. But that's the situation that we were uh, and we still are on 20 trillion worth of bonds. Sorry, go ahead, Steve. Yeah, Corey, if I could just jump in. So typically, when you're comparing uh, different asset classes, uh, you, you have a risk issue and then you have a return issue. And if the central banks are forcing interest rates to be zero or almost negative, to generate any return, they're forcing you into much riskier assets. Exactly. So many, many people have, in the last few years, have come to the opinion that the, these central banks basically inflated an asset bubble. And a lot of people were kind of waiting around, a lot of macro hedge fund managers thinking, hey, this market is very vulnerable. It's going to go. It's going to go. And of course, it's very difficult to time the market to figure out what's going to happen. But I think you know a lot of people have been just waiting for the pin to drop, for the for the camel, the straw to break the camel's back. So the assumption was that people got out of effectively government bonds uh, and savings and got into the stock market. To for example, any kind of risky assets, basically, because you have to generate your return. Sure. Right. Um, well, but let well, me more perverse than that, and we'll get into that. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah. So let me. Um, instead of uh, focusing on that sort of general macro situation that's persisted in the last few years, I wanna just, before we go further, talk about the investment strategy of long tail alpha. Because it's not just that you thought there might've been an asset bubble, because there are plenty of other funds that have very different investment styles to you that also maybe thought there was a, an asset bubble. But I think you and maybe Nassim Taleb as well, because um, I, I don't know exactly what your investment strategy is for long tail alpha, but you 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 have set yourself your fund up in a very distinct way from most other hedge funds, and so maybe you could just talk about that a little bit. Right, that that's great. So let's talk about that because that's very critical. So there's basically two uh, opposing 
camps in financial markets, maybe not opposing camp, but two complementary viewpoints. So the one viewpoint, which um, is the viewpoint that you sell insurance, you sell uh, insurance to somebody who needs it, and they provide in exchange to, for that insurance that you're selling some return or some premium, which is like an option, right? So that's what's called a generally called a uh, risk premium harvesting or short volatility strategy. So that strategy, if you think about it conceptually, uh, depends on mean reversion because it says that I'm going to sell an insurance policy and nothing will happen. So I'll get to collect and keep the premium that somebody else is paying me for. The second school of thought, and that's basically based, you know, based on random walks, mean reversion, et cetera. The second school of thought, which is what I subscribe to a little bit more, most of the time, not all the time, is that markets are inherently non-random. Over large time scales, you get autocorrelations. Over large time scales, the distribution is not mean reverting. It's actually very, very fat-tailed. And I'm not the first one. I've been all, Manuel Broad and others have written about this for decades and decades and decades. But the question is, so, so that, that uh, philosophy or that school of thought says that whenever you think that you're getting paid a big insurance premium for selling something, be very careful because you're probably missing something. And typically, and then we'll come back to this because it's a very, very important event that happened over the last four weeks is people confuse uh, alpha or value added with selling what's called liquidity. So selling liquidity is a classic example of selling insurance and saying, I don't need the liquidity, you need the liquidity, so pay me for it. Our approach is actually the opposite. Our approach is we value our liquidity. And we believe that if liquidity is being given to you cheaply, you should take it. So long tail alpha strategy, and that's why the firm's called long tail alpha. When I started the firm in 2015, I wanted to remind myself that we're always long the tails of the distribution, whether it's on the left side or the right side. So, Vanir, I need to stop yeah. you for the audience, yeah. okay? Because sure. when many people think of liquidity, they think, just think of cash. And now, can you explain to people in what sense you are selling liquidity if people are often just thinking of cash? You're not simply giving people, uh, you know, more easily exchangeable um, assets. Uh, and then, then, then after that, please go into discuss the different tails of the distribution in sure, what sure. sense you are fat-tailed and what that means to be right or left, because yeah. that's in people's heads. Yeah, so that, that's actually uh, an excellent way to look at it. So, what, so when we talk about liquidity, so like you just mentioned, Corey, so liquidity in, in its simplest terms is having enough cash, maybe cash under your mattress or cash in your wallet. And that's the kind of liquidity that will essentially you know, keep you afloat or pay your bills when you need it. The problem is that that liquidity that you keep in cash most of the time can become very expensive because you get no return on it. Like we just mentioned in Europe, interest rates were negative and the US interest rates are zero. So you don't get much return for it. So the trick, I guess, of the trade is how do you manage to keep liquidity, meaning have liquidity when you need it, while at the same time getting return on it? And this is where what we do is use the derivatives markets and use all the different asset classes that exist, you know, bond markets, currency markets, commodity markets, uh, equity markets to have liquidity while at the same time get some nominal return. Now, 
I just want to correct you on something. We're not sellers of liquidity. We actually are typically buyers of liquidity and will willingly buy liquidity from somebody else who is uh, willing to give it to us when liquidity is cheap. Okay, so uh, coming before, uh, before entering this crisis back in January or February, uh, liquidity was for sale. You could get as much money as you want. Rates were very zero, but people did not at that time uh, show a preference for that liquidity. What people realized is in February and March that despite all this money that's being printed by the central banks, there actually wasn't much liquidity in the system because the system has gotten much larger over the last decade than they ever thought. And that's kind of where I was taking the story when I was talking about what happened post the financial crisis is this excess liquidity uh, ended up in what we call an ecosystem of short option strategies. So let me explain that for you and your audience a little bit. So as Steve mentioned before, one way to get return on your assets or on your securities is to invest it in an asset where you actually go out and you know, buy a stock or a bond where you're getting some interest income. Another way of doing that is to suddenly imagine that you're actually an insurance provider and you're going to write insurance policies in the financial markets. And because of academic research that says that generally speaking, selling insurance is a positive expected return transaction, meaning you make money over time, a very large ecosystem of strategies developed that were all simultaneously selling insurance. So you don't need a license to sell financial market insurance. You can just go into the derivatives markets and to exchange and sell an option. And by selling the option, you earn a premium. And you can think, if you want, you can think of that premium as interest income or yield. And everybody started doing it. And that's why the paper that I write, wrote in the Financial Analyst Journal is called Everybody's Doing It. And it's, it called them shadow financial insurers. And that system got so large that any small fluctuation, any small fluctuation would result in a complete implosion of the system as everybody rushed for the exits to basically control their own risk. So what has happened in the last week or 10 days or maybe four weeks, we've seen is this massive exodus out of those shadow insurance type of strategies as everybody ran for the exit and that created a massive unwind of that ecosystem. So I don't know so if that answered your question. So when people unwound, so I guess I want to step back a little bit, right? You say you don't need a license to sell insurance, but you have to have something to sell. So do I go out and buy insurance policy from somebody else and then try to sell it to another person? And then, so, and then I'm, then I become some sort of salesperson and then I acquire these insurance assets. And then I, over the last month or so, just basically liquidated my position. Is that? If, if I could jump in. So I think what Veneer meant when he said sell insurance and he said you don't need a license is that you can just go in the derivatives market and either buy or sell a derivatives contract, which is in effect granting some insurance to the counterparty, and then you're paid for that. Correct. So, so that's, an ex that's a concrete example of someone being able to sell insurance without being regulated. I mean, you have to, you have to be allowed to trade in the derivatives market, but that's it. So, yeah, so let me give you a very concrete example of it. So, so let's say you came in January 
you came and uh, you were in the market. Uh, the perception of risk was very, very low. Everybody felt that the stock market was going to keep going up and up and up. And let's say, Corey, it was you and I. And uh, I asked you, how much, Corey, would you sell me a contract with the following specification, that if the stock market was to move uh, no more than 10% up or 10% down from where it was at that point in time, uh, you would uh, take that premium and keep it, but if it moved more than 10% up or down, then you would pay me any excess movement beyond that 10%. So that's, an, that's a specific contract, and it's basically called an option straddle, right? So I come to you and say, sell me this contract, Corey, and tell me what your price is for selling me this contract that essentially bets that the market is not going to move more than 10% either way. Okay, so let's say you came up with a number and you said, okay, fine, um, I'll charge you 1%. And I'd say, okay, Corey, great. So you sold me that contract, sold me insurance against the market moving more than 10%, and I paid you 1% upfront premium. For every $100, I pay you a dollar. Okay, now fast forward to middle of March. The market has moved 30%. Now you're going, oh my gosh, I said, if the market moves more than 10%, I'm gonna make veneer whole. But it's moved 30%, so I gotta pony up 20%. And he only paid me 1% for this insurance policy. I'm in such a deep hole. So what do you do? Of course, you're not gonna wait all the way to the end. What you're gonna do is, as the market moves, you're gonna do something. You're gonna try to either go and buy that same contract from somebody else, or you're gonna sell the stock market in order to manage your risk. That's basically what's called a hedging activity or rebalancing activity, but that activity actually creates the value of the insurance policy now to go up from 1%, which is what I paid you, to 20%, right? So suddenly you are suffering a massive loss, and because I was lucky enough to buy it at the right price at the right time, I took my $1 and I became $20. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yep. Now, now the model, Corey, is just this, you know, crystalline mathematical thing that says, oh yeah, there are fluctuations in the market, and then the applied price of the contract goes like this and like that. But some of the things Veneer just mentioned are second order effects, where you realize, hey, the guy on the hook for the insurance policy, he has only a finite amount of capital, and he has to start adjusting in real time to what's going on, and a bunch of people are just like him. So you get these exactly. nonlinear feedback effects, which are like an avalanche. So Vinny, how did you take advantage of these nonlinear effects? I'm assuming you did somehow. Yes, so you need, the first you need to know, uh, and you don't, don't always know, first you need to be able to enter this contract. In this case, I was lucky to buy this at one from you, when in my model, I would have said it, the price should have been five. Um, so you were selling it to me for one because you got so conditioned over the last five years for nothing bad happening, if I, ah, you know, I'm gonna collect that one and that's good enough. The second is you just had a need, you wanted to keep it because somebody told you, hey, go and get me income because interest rates around the world are so low. So you're like, sure, you know, I, I, I get 1% from this guy, I'll take that. Now, what we do is we are essentially, in this particular case, you know, we're, we're like counting cards, right? So it's, if you've read uh, Ed Thorpe's famous book from, you know, uh, Beat the Dealer. Beat the dealer right? 
So we're, we're essentially, and every participant does this. So everybody counts cards. So we're counting, we're counting, we're trying to figure out how deep is this ecosystem, who's involved, how strong are their hands, how weak are their hands, what is their reaction function. And every 10 years or so, this cycle actually undergoes the same carnage. And when it doesn't, it actually emboldens people, which means in that, on that table, you've got a lot of very brave people now who have entered because they feel that they figured the market out and, and suddenly all the signatures of um, uh, you know, exorbitant elation, greed, start showing up in various places. And at that point, even if you don't know, you definitely don't know that taking the other side is going to be profitable. But just like in the counting cards example, the odds start to tilt in your favor. That's essentially what we do. We just say, what is the asymmetry for us? How much can we lose if we take the other side? And how much can we make if what we think is likely to happen happens? And if that asymmetry is good enough, then again, as a you know, quantitative or maybe you know, just like the, the poker player in that example that I gave you, you are playing the same odds over and over and over again. So statistically, if you play it long enough and the odds are even slight amount in your favor, sooner or later, you're going to win. And that's what we do. Yeah. One of my great memories from the big short was that a couple of the guys who made a lot of money um, had this basic theory that people underestimate the probability of rare events. Correct. You know, and so just like you said, you know, someone thinks it's quite unlikely this is going to happen. You're pricing it at 5% mate. Makes it clear you thought it was a little more likely than I did in pricing it only at 1%. But I'm curious about you're saying when you're trying to count cards, there are millions of people in this market, right? When you're playing poker, there's like four. And are you simply looking at the largest actors, the central banks? You know, when you're trying to figure out how much some, how much risk these people are willing to take. So who are they? Are they large institutions? Are they individuals? Um, how do you do this on a macro scale? Uh, that is, how do you scale up a poker game to something where there are millions of participants? So it's, this, is the, this is the beautiful thing, again, you know, coming back to thinking outside the box, right? So in, in physics, we have this, and maybe, maybe I've just got lucky because I came to this uh, field from physics. So, so, you know, in condensed matter theory or in many body physics, you don't need to know what each atom is going to do. All you need to know is statistically what the collective system is going to do. So from a macro level, if you know that I'm, and that's in one of the papers that I sent Steve, if you know you take a pot of water, which is millions of molecules, and you start heating it, at some point you're gonna have a phase transition and it's going to convert, go from water to steam. So you know, I don't really need to know what individual atoms are going to do. All I need to know is some macroscopic characteristics of the system. Now, in, in this simple example that I gave you, what we found by our own research and by talking to people and reading pe people and so on, what we found is that everybody, for very valid, responsible reasons, was conditioning their portfolio construction on a very simple parameter, which in the markets we call volatility or implied volatility of options goes back to Black-Scholes we, where we started. Everybody, the Black-Scholes most important parameter is what's the level of volatility or uncertainty in the market. So different participants at different macroscopic scales, all the way from lowest time scales 
to fastest time scales were conditioning their decision-making process on the same parameter called volatility. But at the same time, they were telling each other, or they believed that they were actually not doing the same thing. Sorry, just go ahead, Steve. So, Veneer, so um, I believe you, what you're saying is that in the derivatives ecosystem, or just in actually larger ecosystem, there were a lot of people whose strategy was essentially short vol. Is that, exactly. is that fair? So they, they, exactly. they wanted, they were banking on low volatility in the markets to make their Correct. spread, to make their money. And so you became aware of this. And so you thought, oh, the returns will be X size, will be extremely outsized if in fact there's a spike up in vol. And so that, that was your, the result of your research. And your research had nothing to do with coronavirus, right? You, you didn't actually have a view on what was gonna cause the spike in vol. It was just that you wanted to be prepared for a spike in vol. Is that fair? Absolutely correct. And as a matter of fact, in my year, in my review, in, which I wrote in January 2020, on my look back at 2019, I wrote about that, and uh, I picked up on a paper, on a book by uh, Bob Schiller, who's a Nobel Prize winner out of Yale. And Bob Schiller's book is called Narrative Economics. He actually describes how, uh, just like the pandemic spreads how fear and greed spread. So he's basically uses the pandemic model for fear and greed. And uh, it's a model called the SIR model of how many people are uh, uh, you know, susceptible, how, how many people are infected, and how many people are recovered. And it's a very simple uh, three differential equation model that was written out in 1900s uh, by Kermack and somebody else, the second author. I read this thing and I go, oh my gosh, this is incredible. So when I wrote my retrospective in January of 2020, I actually referred to the fact that, look, avalanches happen. The rhetoric can change in a second. And if you haven't read it, go read Bob Schiller's book. This was like early January. I had absolutely no idea that COVID uh, or coronavirus would actually do anything. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, even though this is a disaster medically and so on, if it weren't COVID-19, it would be something else that would start this cascade. That is my firm belief. And that's how it always is. Over the last hundred years, whenever there's been a market crash, the last straw that breaks the camel, camel's back is the one that you don't expect. And then in retrospective, people say, well, look, it was that unpredictable disease that did it, or you know, the, the Archduke was shot, or in, you know, the, before the World War, or you know, something like that. And then people start fighting the last wars and the last battles. So this is not the last time a market crash is going to happen. The next crash that will happen will happen because of an unforecastable reason, but it will happen because of the same fear and greed taken to its extreme, you know, maybe a, in another decade's time. Can, maybe this is a question I've, I've always wanted to ask someone and ask. You've made a lot of money through a certain strategy. What would have, ha have, what, what, what would have had to happen for you to lose a lot of money with this strategy. So I assume that if the markets had remained fairly stable for one or two years, you would have lost a bunch of money. Is that correct? Exactly, that's exact, not a bunch of money. So that's where the asymmetry comes in, right? So this is a fantastic question because this question comes up over and over and over again. So let's say you buy, um, you live in a nice house and you have a home insurance policy and let's say you pay 1% uh, for protecting your home against a fire. Uh, if 10 years pass by and your house doesn't burn down, you're going to lose 10%. But you'll still be pretty happy 
that you got to live in that house and protect yourself. So the way we think about it is that you allocate the amount of premium and you increase and decrease it based on your forecasts and so on. But at the same time, you have to be okay with having multiple years where you lose a finite, predictable amount of premium. But at the same time, when the inevitable event happens, your payoff is some significant multiple of the premium that you spend. So you're absolutely right. In the last five years or so, we and other people in this space bled some fraction of the money you know, that collectively you all made. And that was okay because that was a planned expenditure. And it could have gone on for another five years. And it would have been another five years of planned expenditure. Now, now, Veneer, in order to get LPs, limited partners, to invest in your fund to do this, did you find you had to find LPs that were fairly smart, fairly quantitative, who understood your strategy, who weren't going to get mad at you after three years of small losses? Uh, and, you know, they had to really deeply understand what you're trying to do, right? Yeah, so we, we have multiple strategies. And, you know, I can't talk about our fund, but we have multiple strategies and that's described in the, you know, articles that you read about us. So there are certain strategies where, you have to be very upfront and tell them that you're spending premium, but you're getting a levered exposure to the left tail, right? Or right tail. So they, they have to come in knowing that they can lose that 1% premium or whatever the number is. But if the event happens, they might make you know, a very significant multiple. We've got right. other strategies where we also do other things. We try to make back some of that premium. But generally speaking, most of our strategies are such that if the markets just bump around or are stable, we actually underperform uh, the others, right? So in last year, when the stock market was up almost 30%, we absolutely underperformed, no question. But that's okay because hopefully everybody has plenty of stocks and they don't need us to add to that. So we are a diversifier uh, and our LPs are those who are now thanking us because when the stock market's down 20 or 30%, they need something that actually you know, creates a diversifier for them. And that's what we're doing for them. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, uh, you, you popped into mind for me because I read an article uh, reporting on your ginormous returns in the last uh, month and, and last quarter. Well, um, see, let's not be vague about this. <laughs> what were the returns over the past month? Yeah. So in the articles I read, numbers like 400% return in a month or in a quarter were, I think, what they uh, said. And I think there was even one number for, I think, return on invested assets, which was something like 900%. Yeah. Can you confirm, Veneer? I can point to uh, the numbers uh, as reported uh, in the articles are accurate, yes. Uh, so but you, you have to go look at the articles for the actual numbers, yeah. But right. Now, um, you know, when I contacted you, I was thinking to myself, because I, I basically went through this process when I was, you know, learning about the coronavirus when it was still just happening in China, but I was very convinced it was not going to remain bottled up in China. And then so I started looking at my own investments. And so around, I guess it was late February, I went all basically all to cash in my own portfolio. And later on, I was thinking to myself, well, back in the day when I used to actually do derivatives trading on my own, I probably would have made a bundle of money, but I'm so out of practice. I didn't even have a brokerage account for trading derivatives uh, a couple months ago. And so I just ended up going to cash, which was good enough.
but I thought to myself, hey, a bunch of these smart hedge fund guys were probably thinking the way I was thinking, and they must have made some just incredible outsized returns. And so when I contacted you, I thought you were going to tell us a story about spotting the corona phenomenon and then making the trades. But actually, you were just prepped for this uh, catastrophe already. You wasn't had nothing to do with reasoning about corona. Is that right? Exactly right. So I never told, I mean, I have a firm rule. Uh, I fight the temptation, having done this for now 30 years, to uh, forecast unpredictable things. I know I can't do it. I can't, I don't forecast the market. Uh, I, I think part of the reason, perhaps, maybe that I've been able to survive so long in the markets is that uh, I actually don't even forecast the probabilities very much. Uh, I only look at the severity, right? So any the gains or losses in any contract or any transaction or any security is the product of the probability of that event happening and conditional on that event happening, what is the gain or loss, which is called the severity. So I always focus on the consequences. Uh, and I try to kind of hold my own ego at bay when it comes to forecasting. So if you'd asked me back in January, what do you think of this coronavirus thing? I probably would have said that eh, it's going to blow away. Nothing will happen because, you know, look, I mean, the whole global health system and the global economy shut down because of a virus. Impossible. It just cannot happen. I mean, in this day and age of techno you know, technology and medical research, I mean, I sometimes feel like I, you know, obviously people like you, perhaps uh, that, you know, I'm living in a, in a, in a novel, like in, in fiction here. Uh, but so I absolutely did not forecast the, concept, uh, the coronavirus, but, but once the signature, the telltale signatures of the consequences on the derivatives markets, which is basically the illiquidity. So I can get into that on how we actually started to kind of gauge the temperature of the markets to then say, wait a minute, this is the event and this is going to get ugly. At that point in time, we knew that, you know, this was it. Uh, so anyway, we can, um, but I did not forecast it, just to be very clear. So Vinir, it's quite interesting that you say this is the event because we're in the middle of it and it's not clear what the event is, whether it's going to end soon, whether the markets are going to go back soon. So I'm, I know you can't disclose the details of your uh, strategy, but I'm just curious, when something like this happens, do you change after the event happens or you, you just keep kind of maintaining a pretty stable approach rather independent of events? Because again, you can't predict the future now any more than you could probably four months ago. Yeah, for you, I still cannot predict the event. I don't know how long it takes. Uh, I, I hope it's uh, over soon, but I'll tell you what started to happen. <clears throat> so uh, the atomic building blocks of financial markets uh, are a couple of futures contracts that everybody trades. And let me tell you why they're the atomic building, building blocks. So over the last decade, uh, I told you the story of how this incredible ecosystem of uh, what we call short volatility strategies started, where everybody is selling an option. Now, what theory tells you uh, is that if you are hedging an option position, then again, going back to Black-Scholes and the assumptions of continuous transactions and no transactions costs, you are able to trade the, the futures contracts in equities called the E-mini futures contracts that trade on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. It's the deepest single market in the whole world. And it is the atomic building block of option traders because at any given point in time, you assume that regardless of how big you are, you'll be able to buy and sell enough of these futures contracts to locally make your position unexposed to the market. It's called delta hedging. 
Now, what we started to see, and the same thing with the treasury market, something called the treasury futures market, very, very big market, literally trillions uh, grade uh, on an average basis on, you know, when things are liquid. <clears throat> now, coming into February, what we started seeing is a very critical telltale signature, which is that the liquidity, the total amount of size that is shown in the exchanges, basically went by a factor of 120th. Okay, so let's assume that 100 is your normal size. What was being showed in the futures contract, which we see in real time flashing all day long, went to five. Okay, so one twentieth. So on the one side, what you have is, as I said, my hypothesis, an incredibly large ecosystem of people who all have to delta hedge or hedge or sells or buy futures contracts. And on the other side, the liquidity, one twentieth. Okay, so at that point, my visual is, a big elephant and a very tiny needle. The elephant is 10 times larger than I have ever seen in my career, including the four crises I've lived through, 1994, 98, 2000, 2007, 2008. So I know just by counting cards, counting participants, that the size of the derivatives markets is between five to 20 times larger. And in front of my eyes, I see what everybody's banking on, the futures contract, is liquidity is 120th. You multiply 20 by 10, tells you things are 200 times likely to get worse. Order of magnitude 20, maybe 2000, who knows? Nobody knows. When you have a system where there's a dislocation that's 100 to 200 times larger than you've ever seen before, you know what to do. You know what's gonna happen. And that's because the market makers are electronic. Sorry, go ahead. I mean, this is really fascinating. You've, you've basically got to unpack all of that. You used a lot of sure. terms. I think many people are not going to understand what's yeah. a deep market, right? Delta hedging. What you know, many of our listeners may understand this, but explain how you actually hedge in such a way that you may uh, limit your risk, and what it means to have this asymmetry between essentially the size of uh, the derivatives market and what you're saying futures. You, when you say futures are one twentieth, people are not selling and buying futures at, at that point in time. Is that Correct. So anyway, just you unpack that, remember, back to kind of finance 101 level. Absolutely. And I apologize because I went through a lot there. So, okay, so, so let's go back to where we started, options. So, Corey, you sold me an option, and I bought that option. You sold it to, to me for $1, and I own this option now. Now the market starts to go against you, and you know that you're losing money. So what you do is you plug in all the parameters, the current stock price, the volatility, uh, interest rates, into your handy dandy black Scholes calculator and out pops a number which is basically the local derivative the derivative the price the underlying which is a stock the price of the option the underlying which is called the delta first derivative and that says corey if you want to not have a market exposure right here right now you have to go out and sell x number of futures contracts or stock market. You have to sell this many stock to actually be locally neutral, meaning have no exposure to the market because that's where you wanna be. You always wanna be, if you don't have a view, you wanna be what we call flat. You don't wanna have any exposure. So you, you say, okay, great. My formula tells me go and sell X number of contracts. Well, that goes back to the ecosystem now. So as, as you're doing it, so is everybody else who's got this, option that they've sold to their customer. They're doing exactly the same calculus. 
and they're saying, let's go sell too. So you've got a line of people who are lined up in this exchange, all wanting to sell. Now, on the other side, somebody has to buy them. So in the old days, the buyer used to be a veneer or a Corey or a Steve who would say, sure, I'll buy it from you at the right price. But because of the technological improvements we've had in, in trading over the last 10 years, the person on the other side is not a person, it's a machine. And the machine's masters have told it, when Corey comes to sell and a million other Corys come to sell to you, just say no. Just turn the switch off, okay? Say, I'm not playing. So that's what I call illiquidity. So you come in and you say, hey, my model said that there was gonna be this person there going to, willing to buy, where is he? Well, he's not there because he's a machine. And the minute he saw you coming, he said, I'm not there. So suddenly you thought there was all this, what we call market depth. You saw, you expected somebody to take the other side and bail you out. But 99.x percent was a bot, a robot, somebody's algo that turned off. And then there was one human there who said, oh my gosh, Corey's gonna come and run me over, so I'm gonna back off. So you suddenly go to zero, essentially, except for somebody who's required to make market. Does that make more sense? So Steve is a wrestler. This is like mano a mano, man on man wrestling, okay? This was like the old days, right? But, but does, I mean, doesn't standard supply and demand theory say there's gonna be somebody out there who will take it, they may not give me much money for it? That's a theoretical abstraction, Corey, but when there's actually a crisis situation, uh, those approximations may not hold. So you may not find people stepping forward or that, that there may be a huge imbalance of people wanting to sell and only a few people wanting to buy. And so then it becomes an illiquid market. Got it. So, so this is more similar to the picture you should uh, have in your mind is not the picture of a stock market or financial market, but of a big sword or knife, as we call it, falling from the sky. Catching and, the knife. And you want to, are you going to, you know that somebody should catch it, but do you want to be the one catching it? Probably it. not. And so then uh, nobody wants to catch it. But this confuses me because I, I'm thinking of your statistical analogy, right? And there's a million molecules out there. To me, there's some molecule out there that's going to catch this thing if there's so many of them. It's just a matter of probabilities. And shouldn't this all just smooth out eventually, given that, you know, the price yes. has changed enough to make it appealing? Absolutely. And that's exactly right. That is the key word. The price has to fall to a point where it's either appealing or somebody like the federal government has to come and say, we will catch the falling knife because we have an infinite printing press. So come on, right? Now, they came on after a while, but until they came on, there are a number of people like myself who have tried to catch the falling knife. When I first started in 1991, I tried to catch the falling knife, and I won't use the proper uh, French for it, but, uh, but what, when you realize what happens to you, you just say, sorry, not doing it again. So what ultimately happens is you end up finding a price level at which somebody says, this is the greatest discount that I'm ever gonna get. And that happened about two weeks ago. And I can tell you some examples of stuff that was trading what we call money good. You're gonna get your money back on this stuff that was trading a 20, 30, 40% discount to its fair value. At that point, somebody says, okay, enough. 
let's step up and spend our dollar because we don't care. Now, one of the problem is that there are lots of regulations for good reason. They're called circuit breakers, which don't allow the markets to fall or rise below, behind, beyond a certain amount, only 5%, 7%, 10%, something like that. Does it apply to rises too, Veneer? I thought it was just falls. It, it, also applies, it applies overnight. In the overnight session, it also applies to uh, rises in the futures markets. So there's limits on both sides because they will just want you to cool down, basically, and, and not get panicked which is a very good thing, by the way. But those circuit breakers were set when that so-called uh, you know, knife used to be a, a Swiss knife. And they're not set up for today's world and that you know, it's like King Arthur's sword. <laughs> so, so, you know, so you've got a massive 20X bigger ecosystem and the circuit breakers are like this. And that's what you saw in the, in two or three weeks ago is every day you would come in and the market would be a limit down meaning it can't move anymore or limit up, limit down, limit up, limit down, limit up, which basically means that the markets are not allowed to move. So, so ultimately, you know, the markets were completely dysfunctional. It was complete structural breakdown of the markets during that uh, one week period. So, sorry, Steve, just one question. Had the regulations kept up with increasing size of the market, where would these cutoffs occur now? That's a very tough question. So I'm not a regulator. I probably shouldn't opine. I'm sure people who know about this have thought about this and uh, they'll come in. But uh, all I can say is the, either the size of the cutoff should have been larger or there should have been, in my view, some other mechanisms through which the system should have not, never been allowed to get so out of control where this kind of event were to happen. So we basically had a 10 times or 20 times larger market getting through a 20 times smaller needles hole. And that imbalance essentially uh, is an imbalance that should not have been allowed to happen, I guess, yeah. So Vineer, are, are, the markets, are the markets restored now that the helicopters have been dumping money on us and the printing press is running overnight? Um, do you see these liquidity problems solved now? Are the markets back to normal or are you still seeing some dislocations? No. So the short answer is it's been a big help, but the true answer is that it's a fix in the wrong places. So, uh, so whenever a regulator, and I'm not, you know, a complete free market, um, do whatever you want believer, at the same time, I do think that uh, central banks and federal governments have to pick and choose, and they're picking and choosing winners. What we saw in the last couple of um, weeks are unprecedented actions where the central bank in the US is buying private market assets. They're buying corporate bonds now, they're buying high yield, they're buying ETFs. People in the market are front running them. So ETF, you know, so you've read about that. So what's happening is that the, the markets have two functions, as you know. Markets both um, store wealth, make people get wealthy or not so wealthy, but markets also signal uh, the state of the economy. Because, and yes, you can pump in liquidity to boost asset prices, which is what has happened perhaps permanently, perhaps temporarily. Nobody knows, I don't know, I can't forecast it. But the signaling component of the markets, and I've written a lot about this and I have no problem talking about it, uh, even on the podcast, is the signaling component has been massively distorted. So negative yields, negative yields in Europe, for instance, are a function of the massive amount of liquidity, almost 
eight trillion worth of liquidity that the Japanese and the Europeans have printed. That's created negative yields, but this distorted bond markets. The current inflow of capital that has come in uh, has distorted capital markets in the US. Now, one cannot judge and say, well, they shouldn't have done it. You know, when you have an accident on the freeway and the ambulance comes, it doesn't say, you know, were you drinking or were you not drinking? Their job is to actually, you know, save the person who's in the accident. That's their first, that's where we're at right now. But I do think there's a massive amount of moral hazard. And I do think that this is probably not over yet. Maybe we could push it further out, but I think uh, we're not uh, yet uh, at the end of this, uh, this particular event. So, so after the last financial crisis in 2008, um, you know, with, I think the, the U.S. added, I don't know, was it about $4 trillion to its balance sheet in the wake of that? Maybe, maybe more, I don't know. But at that time, I remember a lot of people saying that, hey, there's going to be some inflation uh, as a consequence of all this printing. And it ultimately didn't really materialize. And now we may have added, I don't know, could it be another $10 trillion before this is all over to our balance sheet? Uh, do you have any, does your crystal ball say anything about what's going to happen here with inflation or the value of the dollar, et cetera? Remember, Veneer doesn't forecast, Steve. Yes. I know, but but yes. I can tell you my odds. Yeah, go ahead. I can tell ahead. you where the severity is, right? So that, I think, Corey, thank you for reminding me again uh, before I made a forecast there. But yes, you are right. So, <laughs> so, so the state today compared to 2008, 2009 is very different. In 2008, 2009, yields were at 5%. We went down to almost zero. Right now, we're zero or negative. Uh, you're absolutely right. There was no inflation at that point in time. But... And there's no inflation right now, but we have a very different situation today, which is uh, the global economy shut down. And at some point, the supply chain, as they call it, can become restricted because if people are not making stuff and people cannot transport stuff and other people need to consume those things, food, oil, whatever. Uh, and money is, uh, uh, you know, much more available now, 10 times more available now, probably it biases you. Uh, in the favor of inflation rising, and central banks would like nothing more than inflation to rise. But having said that, I, my bias is that, yes, this is more inflationary uh, than it was back in 08, 09, but I'm not going to bet on it. But let me go back to the severity component where do I do make bets. If inflation were to rise, and I don't know if it rise, let's say the probability was 10% that inflation was to rise. What are the assets that will do really well? What are the assets that will do really badly? I do have a list of those. So all else being equal, conditional on that event happening, I know what I need to do. But if that event doesn't happen, I don't get hurt very much. But if that event happens, I get the asymmetric risk return profile. So that, that's how we position our portfolios and our client port clients' portfolios. So, so I mean, here's a question about inflation. Uh, many people did predict inflation after the... Uh, 2008-9 financial crisis and it didn't happen. So assume people had to revise their model of what caused inflation, one would assume if they're empiricists. And so did your theory of what uh, would likely be the cause and consequence of inflation change? I mean, there are many attempted explanations, right? Globalization pressed uh, down labor costs and the cost of goods, et cetera, et cetera. But how did your theory of inflation change from 2008-9? How has it informed your current view as to what might be the consequences of renewed inflation and the likelihood of renewed inflation going forward. 
So I don't really have much of a theory because I'm not an economist and I don't, again, this is, inflation is a very slow moving process, but I, I do say I believe one thing and, uh, and that comes back again to, uh, you know, linking various aspects. So we, we all know that we have an incredible amount of debt globally. And the way you deal with debt generally is either by defaulting, meaning you don't you refuse to pay it back, devaluation, meaning you devalue your currency, or inflating it away. So there's basically only three choices. Okay. So my theory has always been: okay, are we going to default? Are we going to devalue? Or are we going to inflate? So what does that what do they mean if you if you kind of unpack it a little bit more? So <clears throat> The big thing that drives inflation is a management of expectations. So it's not locally what's happening today, but where is that long-term expectation in people's minds where inflation is going to go? And that depends on the credibility of the central bank. So let's go back to our three-pronged equation. Will the U.S. default? Absolutely not, because we have a printing press. We can print as much money as we want. Japan won't default. Europe can default. Nobody will default. None of the major countries. So throw that one out. I should never say never, but most likely not, okay? Okay, that could be a tail risk, and you'll probably remind me of it when I said nobody will default. So maybe they can, but I don't think they will, okay? Can everybody devalue all at the same time? No, because currencies, whenever there's a currency, there's a counter currency. Dollar, yen, yen, euro, dollar, euro. So that's not gonna happen most likely because everybody will race to the bottom. So there's only the third option, which is to change people's expectations of what money buys, which means recalibrating the anchor, recalibrating long-term prices, okay? That's the way we're gonna pay the debt down. Now, I know Steve's gonna bring in MMT into this. Uh, maybe that's never going to happen, but I would say that the market and market participants are completely and thoroughly unprepared for a recalibration of the anchor. And everything that I read, everything that I say, uh, see, is leading me to believe that government authorities would like nothing more at this point in time than the inflation anchor to actually move up a little bit because that gets them to go out to spend. When you know that prices are going to go up in the future, you go and spend. And right now, one of the only ways to get the consumer out of their homes uh, when the economy recovers is to have them go and spend. So I do believe that all else being equal, the risk is that uh, inflation rises and hopefully the consequences won't be too bad for anybody. Yeah, it's a little, you know, I think it's often said that the moment before the bubble actually pops is when you start to get the craziest theories for why there is no bubble. And so when people trot out MMT, it makes me wonder if that's, that's like the last moment before we realize, oh, this debt is actually unsupportable and we're going to have to, you know, inflate to, to deal with it. Um, but who knows? Maybe maybe we'll go through a decade of people accepting the idea that Keynesian stimulus is great and governments can run up debts and it doesn't matter, et cetera, et cetera. So it's very hard to know. So when I came to the U.S., sorry, in 1982, this was right after the big inflationary spike. Okay, Treasury yields were, I think, in the mid-teens. Interest rates had just broken 20. You could go to the bank and you could get a 15% deposit right and nobody wanted to believe that interest rates would ever 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 come down people 
the anti-NMT was uh, popular then, which is buy gold, inflation is never coming down, you can do nothing about this, but, right? <clears throat> and then you saw a couple of years ago, the exact mirror image of it, and exactly to your point, Steve, people's views and justification in hindsight, um, uh, you know, can be completely rational, but when you look back at it uh, a decade, you say, what was I thinking? So. Anyways. Okay, uh, guys, we got to roll back a little bit because most people don't know what MMT means, uh, sure. the monetary theory. So lay it out in simplest terms, if you could, and why you think it's uh, maybe outdated in the current uh, environment. So I don't know if I can lay it out in the simplest terms because uh, if I do, some, some economist was going to correct me with a lot of nuance, but I'll just tell you the way that I think that Steve and I think about it, perhaps I think about it, is that if you're a sovereign nation, you can print as much money as you want. And it has really no inflationary consequences. I mean, that's the simplest way of the, the, the kind of the gist of it. Um, so hence, you should print as much as you want. Uh, and so far, we have seen a test of one, as they say, right? It's uh, economics and financial markets have only had one history. And as a physicist, you would never take that as proof that it works. But as an economist or as a finance professional, you could just say, hey, look, we've been printing 20, 30, 40, 50 trillion dollars in negative yields. There is no inflation, hence it works. Hold it, but, but, but we've got lots of examples of governments printing money and leading to massive inflation. So it means recent, recent evidence. So yeah, so I think many people who are skeptical of MMT would say, well, if you, if you look at historical examples, this is all going to end in tears. Yeah, as um, it has for co many countries throughout history. Yes. So I, I think MMT could very well be that last crazy theory before uh, the bubble finally popped, this bubble being the idea that uh, sovereign debt uh, is unlimited without consequences. Um, that MMT could be the sort of last uh, weird theory that tries to support that before it becomes completely unsupported by reality. Well, there's, a, there's another aspect of it, right? Which is the, you know, so I'm a big believer in invested interests. And, uh, and I just finished reading uh, John Kenneth Galbraith's, uh, uh, one, of, one of his books, and um, I'll, I'll remember the title in a second. But, but when somebody says that, you know, MMT works versus somebody who says MMT doesn't work, they have some ends for which they're using either one of the two hypotheses. So I'm not sure where I am. I don't really have a particular view. I don't, so, um, so I, I don't really know, so that's why I won't say it works or doesn't work. It's a crazy theory, not a crazy theory. But, but if you believe for a second that uh, we are sw swinging, the pendulum is swinging again from an extremely capitalist-friendly, uh, corporation-friendly, um, maybe three or four decades to a uh, you know, people-friendly, liberal, uh, social type of environment, then the pro proponents of MMT are basically arguing for a incredibly large amount of fiscal stimulus to bring up the people who've been left behind. So there's the vested interest here, which is print money and bring the uh, distribution on the left side of the wealth distribution back up. So that's why they're using this theory. And if it's used to, and I think maybe, you know, one aftermath of the financial crisis will be that, uh, perhaps social programs become a lot more accepted and maybe money printing to do helicopter drops becomes a lot more accepted. Um, so I think, you know, if you understand the motivation of the people, 
like the Paul Krugmans of the world and so on, then maybe it's better, you know, easier to understand yeah. why I, they might would, support this. Yeah. I would say one, there's one flavor of MMT that I could kind of accept, which is that if the money is printed for the purpose of infrastructure investment or maybe investment in human capital, that eventually that could pay off enough that it is a legitimate, uh, reasonable, you know, uh, expenditure for the government to run up a huge amount of sovereign debt. You know, building the super fast trains in China, for example, maybe is ultimately really going to pay off for them. And I, I think that, you know, that isn't as implausible to me, but just the general idea that sovereign debt doesn't matter seems very crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, uh, we'll see. I mean, uh, the great, amazing thing about financial markets is that uh, they will tell you. Uh, you just have to wait, uh, you know, just long enough. And just about, you know, I've, this is my fifth crisis. You know, I think I've survived this one so far so good. We, we don't know. Maybe the next one will take me down. But, um, but I'll just tell you this one thing, that before every single crisis, the story, the rhetoric is always exactly the same. And like you just said, it's when people start saying this time is different, right? Yep. You know that we are reaching the eighth or ninth, maybe the overtime innings of this game. And uh, so you got to get very cautious. And if you do believe that you can't make perpetual emotional machi machines and you can't build something out of nothing, then it tells you, and coming back full circle, it tells you you can't forecast it, but you know where you want to be. Well, we're over time, so let, that seems like a good place to end it. I want to thank you, Veneer, for being on the show. I'm sure our listeners are really going to enjoy it, and uh, I hope to catch up with you before too soon. Likewise, you guys. Thank you very much for your questions, and I hope there wasn't too much uh, jargon that I slipped into, but thank you, Corey, for asking the question. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs>